if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. Last week in our study in Revelation, we entered into chapter 4, and the final section of the book, according to the outline which Jesus himself gave to us in chapter 1, verse 19. Let me share it one last time, where Jesus said, Write the things which you have seen, talking to John, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So the book of Revelation breaks down into three sections. Write the things which you have seen, Jesus told John. That would have been the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. And the things which are. Well, that would be the things of the church that we studied in chapters 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after this, the Greek is metatauta, which means after these things. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. Let me just review briefly, and we'll move on. But, uh, you know, the third division uh, starts in chapter 4, where Jesus said, in, And uh, write the things which will take place metatauta. After these things, after what things? Well, after the things of chapters 2 and 3, which deal with the church. Or, in other words, after the church age comes to a close. The Bible teaches that the church age started on Pentecost, Acts 2, and will end at the rapture, which I believe is recorded in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read it. After these things, meta tauta, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place, meta tauta, after these things. Now, guys, since the events of chapter 4 can't really begin until the church age closes, that's the things of chapters 2 and 3, Metatauta, after those, the, the church's age closes, um, chapter 4 really can't begin, and the church age doesn't officially close until the rapture. As we said last week, can we see evidence of the rapture of the church sometime after the close of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4? And I said to that last week, yes, absolutely, all right? Absolutely. First of all, we read... Again, in verse 1, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So the first thing John sees is a door standing open in heaven, which I believe is a door of deliverance, a door of deliverance to evacuate his church, Jesus' church, off of the earth, as he promised in Revelation chapter 3, verses 8 and 10, that he was going to deliver his true church, uh, symbolized by the church of philadelphia we think i believe it's the evangelical church all right but um i believe the lord is uh, in verse one talking about a door of deliverance that he is going to use to evacuate his church off of the earth before his divine judgments are poured out on the world secondly john says and the first voice which i heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here. And as we said last week, that sounds like rapture language. And we uh, read from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 
verses 51 to 53, the two classic rapture passages in the New Testament. You can check those out on your own. But guys, as we said last time, the church has been mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of this book. But now suddenly she disappears from the earth. And we won't see her again in the book until we see her as the bride of Christ in chapter 19, returning with the Lord Jesus, her bridegroom, to the earth to establish his kingdom. So after the church is removed from the earth at the rapture, the scene now shifts to heaven in Revelation chapter 4, where the church, listen now, very important, where the church, once seated with Christ in heavenly places spiritually, Ephesians 2, 6, is now, is now seen safely seated with Christ in heaven, literally, listen, before the judgment of God is poured out on this Christ-rejecting world. Again, let's read verse one, verses 1 to 3. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this, after the church is gone, after the church is gone. Immediately, I was in the Spirit. May I paraphrase, in a twinkling of an eye. I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now, please note, John didn't say that God himself was a jasper and sardius stone. He said that God was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance. Again, he is trying to describe God, a first century man, trying to describe God who is himself light, right? As Paul said, he dwells in unapproachable light. And John, I believe, sees a vision of the throne of God, and he sees no form of God. We talked about that extensively last week, because God is spirit. A spirit has no form. But since God himself is light, I believe John saw light, just different colors and hues emanating from this throne. And here he is in his primitive first century way. He's trying to describe all these multicolored lights, and he, he does it as best he can using the imagery of uh, different kinds of, of, of uh, precious stones, different colored precious stones, right? And, uh, but but this is, he's doing his best, trying to describe what he is seeing, uh, these various lights emanating from the throne of God, uh, using the imagery of various colored gemstones. We know that from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John said, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, guys, Jasper is a clear gem. And we know that from Revelation 21, verse 11. It tells us that, okay? So jasper is a clear gem, and the sardius stone is blood red. Together they speak of purity and redemption. You remember that 
the high priest, excuse me, high priest's breastplate. There were 12 precious stones on the high priest's breastplate. Each stone represented one of the 12 tribes. We, we saw this when we studied Exodus a few years ago. But uh, there were 12 precious stones on the front of this breastplate of the high priest, and each stone represented one of the tribes of Israel. The sardius stone was first and represented Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. The jasper stone was last and represented Benjamin, whose name means the son of my right hand. So we have represented the first and the last stones of the high priest's breastplate. As the book of Revelation opens up with a vision of Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, do you remember what he calls himself in verse chapter 1, verse 17? The first and the last, right? But again, the sardius stone was first and represented Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. The jasper stone was last and represented Benjamin, the son of my right hand. And of Jesus Christ, we read in Colossians 1, verse 15, he is the firstborn over all creation, Jesus Christ, to whom the Father said in Psalm 110, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What am I saying? I am saying, according to Psalm 40, verse 7, Jesus himself speaking, the volume of the book is written of him. Not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New. We see him on every page, in every type, picture, shadow, and so on. It's all about Jesus. And when we as Christians don't make our lives all about Jesus, we suffer. Things are out of whack. Uh, things don't work right. We, we can't add him to our lives in the sense that he orbits our lives. He's got to be the center, and we must orbit him if things are going to be what God designed them to be in our life. Some of us Christians say, you know, my Christianity isn't working for me. Really. No, it's not working. I just don't see the stuff happening that God promised me. Okay? Well, God's promises are true. Nothing he ever promises is not true. So if God's promises are true and you're not receiving the benefits of those promises, something is wrong with the way you're approaching God's word or how you're living your life. Look, very simply, if our Christians, Christian lives are kind of broken, uh, it's our fault in some way. And I'll tell you where to start getting things right. Get Jesus back in the center of your life on the throne and your life must revolve around him then and when you do that believe me things will start to change for the positive again verse three and john is now describing a vision of the throne of god and he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald like an emerald Notice this rainbow is not an arc like we're used to seeing. It is a complete circle. Why? Well, because have, as some have pointed out in heaven, nothing is incomplete. Everything is complete. There's nothing unfinished. 
There's not half circles. There's full circles. Uh, all that kind of stuff, right? But what does the rainbow remind us of? All right? It reminds us of God's covenant with mankind after the flood, right? Where do we first see a rainbow? Genesis chapter 9. Why don't you turn there? And while you're doing that, let me remind you when we started this book that Revelation contains 404 verses. 278 of them allude back to the Old Testament. That's one of the blessings that we are promised by the Lord. If we study this book, it'll take us into every nook and cranny of God's Word. And that's a blessing, to know God's Word like that, right? And so it, many times when you read something, and there's, it's, it's imagery, you can't figure out, well, what does this mean? See if you can take a concordance and find something uh, containing that word or some words that appear in the Old Testament. Study that passage. It's probably referring back to that because there's something the Holy Spirit wants to use in this imagery in Revelation to help us understand more the character or the person of Christ. All right, But the rainbow first appears in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood. Starting with verse 13, where God said, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and Noah. The earth. Uh, it goes way beyond Noah, is my point. Sometimes Christians, you know, it's called the Noahic covenant, but it wasn't just about Noah, okay? It's about, you know, God's covenant now with the whole earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I established between you, between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And so, guys, the rainbow was a sign or a symbol of God's promise, a prom, a, his covenant. A covenant was a promise, a solemn promise, right? So the rainbow was a, a sign or symbol of God's covenant that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. And you say, yippee, but before you get too excited, uh, read the fine print. The next time God judges the world, it will be by fire. Right? So, you know. But again, why do we see the rainbow in heaven? And I'm looking at this with you know, the eyes of, of, okay, these are all symbolic things. Okay, I'm not saying they're not, John didn't see these things in, in reality. But what was the, 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 the Holy Spirit trying to communicate through these things, Right? Again, why do we see the rainbow in heaven? Well, first of all, we see it coupled with thunderings and lightnings, right? Which are symbols of God's judgment coming upon the earth. Usually, a rainbow appears after the storm, right? But here we see it before the storm. Here in Revelation 4, we see that judgment is about to fall once again on the whole earth. First time in Noah's day. Second time in the future, 
probably not too far in the future. God's going to bring a worldwide judgment once again. We see it talked about here in Revelation 4, or alluded to. Uh, but the rainbow reminds us that God is merciful, even when he judges. Remember what uh, Habakkuk said, uh, Habakkuk 3, verse 2. He said, O Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. And that's the nature of God. You say, well, yeah, but in what way is this rainbow a symbol of God's mercy? Well, even as God did not destroy the entire human race in Noah's day, but left a remnant, so too with, with this final world judgment that is coming. You know, some have uh, proposed, have said, that they believe that the number of people saved during the tribulation period could be equal to or greater than the number of all the people saved throughout the entire church age from Pentecost to the rapture. If that is true, that would be a great demonstration of God's mercy and operation. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, how could that be? How could that be? Well, I did a little math today, okay? I did a little research and found out that in the first century A.D., the population of the world was estimated at 200 million. 200 million for the whole world. By 1600, it was 554 million world population. By 1919, the world population was estimated at 1.8 billion. 20 years later, 2020, there is almost 8 billion people on planet Earth. 7.8 billion right now alive as we speak. Do you realize that's more people alive right now than have ever lived in the 20th, 20 centuries prior, there are more people, and God allowed it to be so that the maximum number of people could be saved at, you know, pretty much around the same time. And, and that time is going to be during the tribulation period, I believe. Uh, the, the Spirit of God is going to be at work so heavily during this tribulation period that when uh, one of the elders takes uh, uh, John to see all these martyrs in heaven and uh, says, John, who are these? We're, I'm going to quote that in just a second, actually. But, but uh, they, they are the martyrs that come out of the Great Tribulation. And there's so many, John can't even count them for number. I believe the greatest work of the Holy Spirit that this world has ever seen is going to happen during the Tribulation period. More people are going to get saved, and the numbers testify to that reality. I mean, 8 billion people right now, when in the first 20 centuries of the earth's exist, uh, existence since Jesus Christ died on the cross, it doesn't even come close. There's more people alive right now than in those previous 20 centuries combined. Again, verse 3. And he who sat there on the throne was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Uh, you know what? This is the same thing that Ezekiel saw when he saw a vision of the throne of God. We have some time tonight. Why don't you turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. When I went back there today, I was reminded of that vision. 
that he saw of the throne of God, right? And wheels within our wheels and lights. And I'm thinking, Lord, I can't wait to see what he saw. <laughs> I'm thinking, what in the world is he describing? Again, even more primitive than John trying to describe, right? And he's talking about wheels within our wheels. And I'm thinking, wow, I can't wait to see what Ezekiel saw that day. Uh, but we'll move ahead to verse 28. He's still seeing a vision of God's throne. And he, part of it, you can read the whole thing on your own, but it was like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. In other words, there was lights everywhere, right? This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face. Well, that's the proper response when you see God. I have never actually seen God. I have heard evangelists, TV evangelists said that they have seen God face to face. One guy said he was in his bathroom one morning shaving and Jesus walked in. And he got to talking with the Lord. I said, you, you didn't see God. You, there's no way you saw God. If God would have walked into your bathroom, you would have knocked yourself out, dropping so fast to the floor, you would have hit and cracked your head open on the, on the porcelain toilet bowl. Come on. You know, you, Daniel saw the Lord fell on his face. Others who have seen the Lord have fallen on their faces. You don't just see the glory of God, and I'm not saying God revealed all of his glory to these people, but enough where they just fell in, in, in his presence, Right? That's what Ezekiel did. Now in verse 4, guys, again, Revelation 4, verse 4, we are introduced to a group of people that have generated a lot of controversy over the years. Let's read verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Who were these 24 elders? Well, scholars have debated who the 24 elders are for a very long time. Now, I will warn you, I will warn you, in any, if you incorrectly interpret who these 24 elders are, it will cause you to have a vast misunderstanding of the rest of the book. Let me say it again. To incorrectly interpret who these 24 elders are will cause you to have an incorrect understanding of chapters 4 through 19 of the book of Revelation. So it's very important that we nail this down, okay? And I know it's controversial, but I still think it's not beyond understanding if we look at it you know, without any preconceived theological uh, persuasions, okay? So let me give you a few of the more common interpretations, and we'll see if we can't figure out who these elders are. Uh, many, many Christians believe that they are tribulation saints. They aren't tribulation saints. Can't be. Look at Revelation 7. And let's start with verse 13. So 
So John is speaking. Then one of the elders, okay, so this is one of these elders, right, answered saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know, I have no idea. <laughs> you know. So he said to me, Listen, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are tribulation martyrs. In other words, they are now tribulation saints, and they don't show up in heaven until chapter 7. So chapter 4, verse 4, this is, these are not tribulation saints, these 24 elders. Second interpretation, um, held by post-tribulationists, this is their favorite interpretation. I'm sure it's not only theirs, okay? I just throw that up because I know that this is the number one view of post-tribulationists, and that is that these 24 elders are angels. Angels. They're not angels. They're not angels. Revelation 7, verse 11. Begins like this. All the angels. How many is that? All the angels. Stood around the throne and, and the elders, two distinct groups, angels and elders, so the angels can't be the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Let me say this. The reference to the 24 thrones on which the 24 elders sat indicates that they are reigning with Jesus. Nowhere in Scripture do angels sit on thrones, nor are they ever pictured ruling or reigning. When we read about angels in Hebrews chapter 1, what are they referred to as? Ministering spirits, servants, not rulers, okay? Hebrews verse 1, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits? It's angels sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. So you've heard the expression guardian angel. Well, that's biblical, actually, okay? And uh, every Christian has at least one posted on them. Uh, some may require more, but... <laughs> You know, depending on how much trouble you get yourself into, okay, uh, or how much you're being used by the Lord. Okay, Paul might have had a small SEAL team uh, of angels around him. Okay, a bunch of Green Beret angels because he was always getting attacked because he was serving the Lord so powerfully. Um, but but even you have to turn to this one, Matthew 18 verse 10. Jesus said, in in in, in kind of in passing, but we're going to latch onto it to prove our point. He said, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, children. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So it seems that God has got angels posted on children. And God has a very soft spot in his heart for those who are disadvantaged and weak, poor. Remember the three groups he singled out? repeatedly in the Old Testament. He talked about the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. 
And if you treat these groups kindly, God, God says, I will treat you kindly. God's for the underdog. And of course, children are at the top of the list in my mind. And God helped those people that kill children, traffic in children. I would not want to be in their shoes on the day of judgment. That's going to be a horrible day for them, leading to a, a horrible eternity. Uh, but angels we see again ministering, watching over, right? Serving. Also, guys, these elders can't be angels because there are no elder angels. All angels are the same age, having been created by God all at the same time. If you take a concordance and look up the word elder, you will see it's only used in the Bible of men. Of men. Elders are always the older ones in the community, because that typically was a sign of wisdom. The older you were, uh, the more you had learned over the course of your life to be wise uh, in issues. And so they looked to the, uh, the elder community to uh, give wisdom and guidance. And the young in that culture would go to the older and ask them for uh, you know, some guidance or just uh, answers to problems. They respected their elderly. We don't do that in America. But they respected their, their elders. And so elders in Scripture uh, and in the history of Israel and uh, the church, elders are always chosen representatives and leaders of people in both Israel and in the church. Furthermore, in Revelation 5, verse 9, they, the 24 elders, sing the song of the redeemed. Angels can't be redeemed. Once they fall, that is it. There is no second chance. Aren't you glad you're not an angel? And by the way, when you die, you don't become an angel. Maybe you've heard people say, you know, so-and-so died and God needed another angel. Well, you're reading a Hallmark card? God, God did, that's not in the Bible anywhere. I don't know what, you know, maybe out of some soupy Hallmark card. I don't know. Um, so these elders can't be angels for all those reasons, right? Uh, number three, another uh, classic interpretation that many hold to is that these 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, you know, all the redeemed in both the Old and New Testaments. Now, that doesn't sound too bad. doesn't sound too bad. I reject it, though. Okay, I reject it. Um, because John was an apostle, and he's separate from this group, okay? I mean, he would be right there among them, right? And besides that, Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also, talking to his apostles, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, what? Judging the 12 tribes of Israel, not reigning together with the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? Like this interpretation uh, indicates, okay? So who are these 24 elders? Well, again, I think Revelation 4, verse 4 contains some clues um, that may provide us with the answer. Let's read verse 4 again. And I make a big deal out of this, guys, because if you don't get this group right, 
you're going to mess up the rest of the book. We, we, that's why I'm taking a little extra time, just because you've you got to know this group of people, who they are, right? So Revelation 4, verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So first of all, they are sitting on thrones. They're sitting on thrones. You remember what the Lord Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, or to any Christian, really. Revelation 3.21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So they're seen sitting on thrones. Number two, they are wearing white robes. They are wearing white robes. Revelation 3, verse 5. Now these all come out of the two chapters that dealt with the church. Okay? They're wearing white robes. Revelation 3, verse 5. To the church of Sardis, but to any Christian. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And number three, they're wearing crowns. The Greek is Stephanos crowns of gold on their heads. The crowns were similar to those given by judges to victors who competed in athletic competition back then. When you talk about the, um, the Greek games, the Ismissian games in Corinth, uh, of course the Olympic games in Athens, okay, these athletes would compete and the winners would come before the judges' seat and they would receive their reward their award for winning, okay? Um, but again, the Greek word for winning and uh, an award or receiving a reward, a uh, crown, would be stephanos. That was the crown of a victor. An earned reward is the idea, right? In contrast to the crown of a, of a king, which is the Greek word diadem, okay? Um, when we see Jesus returning to the earth, He's wearing many crowns, many diadem, the Bible says. Uh, that is because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, right? But, but these crowns that these elders are wearing are not the crowns of a king. They are the crowns of victors. They, are, they have received an award for being victorious. Even as Jesus said, he who overcomes, I will give this reward, that reward, right? Of course, how do you overcome? 1 John 5, 5. How do you overcome the world? This is he who overcomes the world, the one who believes in Jesus Christ. That's how you become an overcomer. But once you're a Christian, then what we do for the Lord earns us rewards. Okay? And um, that's the idea. The crowns that these elders are wearing seem to indicate, this is important, that these elders had already been judged and rewarded. And I say judged, I don't mean judged punitively. I mean judged like you would be, be judged in an athletic competition again, okay? But the, they're already wearing these crowns, these 24 elders. And it seems to indicate, I think it's pretty clear it does, that these elders had already been judged and rewarded. Uh, look at Revelation 2, verse 10. To the church of Smyrna, Jesus says in verse 10. 
Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. I checked every one of these in my Bible program. It's all the Stephanos crowns, okay? The crowns of winners, the crowns of victors, a reward for service, that kind of thing, okay? Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, to the church of Philadelphia. Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Your reward is the idea. It's one thing to start well. You have to finish well. Salvation once given will never be revoked. But rewards once given can be lost if you backslide and get off into the world again. And that's what the Bible means when it says, at his appearing, Jesus appearing, the rapture, many of his people will be um, humiliated. It will be, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, ashamed, thank you, at his appearing. Because they weren't really, they're saved. That wasn't the issue. It's the rewards, right? Jesus said here, behold, I'm coming quickly. Rapture's going to happen suddenly. Hold fast to what you have that no one take your crown, your reward. Couple that with Revelation 22, verse 12, where Jesus said, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. Crowns, crowns, to give to everyone according to his work. So guys, the fact that these elders, I think you probably figured this out. Uh, I'm sure I gave it away, but... Uh, the fact that these elders are sitting on thrones and wearing crowns and white robes means they represent the church. They represent the church. There, there is no other group they can represent. You know, if you, if, you, if you take away every other possibility, what's left, even if it seems improbable to you, is the answer. They can't be tribulation saints. They don't show up till later on. They can't be angels for all the reasons we just gave you. So who are they? They have to be the church, which, listen, is in heaven now, chapter 4, before the tribulation period starts in chapter 6. The reason so many Christians and Christian scholars try to make this group of elders everything but the church is because if you're mid-trib, pre-wrath, or post-trib in your eschatology, listen, you can't have the church up in heaven before the tribulation period begins. Because in all those views, the church is going into part or all of the tribulation period. But I don't see that's biblical. I just don't see it. Something else to consider. The number 24 only appears once in the Bible. In 1 Chronicles chapter 24, where it was used of the priests of Israel, which David divided into 24 groups or courses to facilitate their service to God throughout the year. The priesthood had grown so large, they couldn't all serve there at the tabernacle. The temple wasn't built yet. That came later on through David's son Solomon. But there were so many priests that they couldn't all serve God in the tabernacle, uh, you know, every week throughout the year. 
So David wisely divided them up into 24 courses, and each priest served the Lord for two weeks out of the year. Two weeks out of the year. Pretty smart way to handle it, right? And um, people say, yeah, but that was talking about Israel. Well, yeah, but the priests of Israel. Key in on the word priest there. As we remember of God's church, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we are a royal priesthood. And then in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, we are called a kingdom of priests. And I, I just believe the 24 elders represent the church. One more thing that you might find interesting, and we'll move on. Every time in the Old Testament, now hear this out, okay? Every time in the Old Testament, when we get, we get a glimpse of heaven, whether through the eyes of Daniel in Daniel 7, or Isaiah, Isaiah 6, or Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapters 1 and chapter 10, every time we get a glimpse of the throne of God in heaven, through who's ever seeing this vision, right? We, we see everything John sees. They, they, they line up pretty much the same, right? What Daniel saw and Isaiah and Ezekiel and then John, it, it matches up perfectly, except for one exception. John sees 24 elders, and those others did not. You, you won't see that when you, in Daniel 7, Isaiah chapter, what is it, chapter, uh, I'm not, uh, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel chapter 1 and 10, same vision of the throne of, of, of God in heaven. Only thing missing between what they saw and what John saw was 24 elders. Why? Why? Well, I believe it was because, as Paul the Apostle told us in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, that, listen, the church was a mystery hidden from the Old Testament saints. The Greek word for mystery is mysterion. That's just a transliteration right from that Greek word, mysterion. The word mysterion means, listen, something that had been hidden or unknown in the Old Covenant, but now God in the New Covenant has revealed. Revelation 4, verse 5. So, once again... I am absolutely convinced these 24 elders are the church, represent the church, okay? Again, in heaven, chapter 4, before the tribulation period begins in chapter 6. All right, verse 5. From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. You know, in nature, lightning and thunder always indicate that a storm is coming. Here they indicate that a storm of judgment is coming. But, you know, when you hear that thunder, right, uh, it's so po powerful, isn't it? Uh, in the Psalms, I believe God, or the psalmist said, um, the thunder, is, it causes things to shake. It, it's, it's indicative of God's power. His voice thunders, right? And it just... You know, yeah, it tells us a storm is coming, but it also reminds us of how powerful God is. How powerful God is. 
You remember in Exodus uh, chapter 9, verse 23, as Moses is before Pharaoh trying to convince him to let God's people go. And Pharaoh's response was, I will not bow to the will of the God of Hebrew slaves. Because in that culture, uh, the most powerful gods gave their people victories. Well, Egypt was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at that time. And here Moses is coming to Pharaoh to say, look, our God wants you to let us go so we can sacrifice to him in the wilderness. Pharaoh laughs. You kidding me? The God of Hebrew slaves I'm supposed to worry about and honor him? Take a hike, you know. So Moses is trying to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. So at one point he stretches out, verse 23, Exodus 9, stretches out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Verse 28, it got so bad that Pharaoh said, Entreat the Lord, pray for us, that there may be no longer, may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Right? I mean, this freaked him out. It was so powerful. Uh, it, he couldn't deny how strong the God of Israel was. He was terrified. And, and said, I'll, I'll, I'll let you guys go. Just ask your God to stop. Right? Now, we all know that Egypt in the Bible is a type of the world. And the judgment that God brought on the Egyptians parallels the judgment he will pour out on this world during the tribulation period. It's interesting, we're going to see the correlation, right? That uh, all the plagues that God poured out on the Egyptians, those ten plagues, each one was against one or more of their gods. Your gods are so powerful? That was Pharaoh's thing, right? Our gods are much more powerful than the God of Hebrew slaves. Oh, really? So God, each one of those judgments, those ten judgments, were poured out upon a God or gods of the Egyptians. The, first, the last one being death of the firstborn, because the firstborn of Pharaoh was not only the uh, one to succeed uh, the, his father to the throne, uh, he was considered a god himself. Pharaoh was considered a god, and especially, uh, well, not especially, but also his firstborn who would take the throne after he died, right? So this was all, we'll see that as we get moving in, in the, uh, with the judgment portion. But right now, you know, John sees this throne uh, uh, in heaven. He sees no form, but he hears thunders and sees lightnings and lights are emanating and there's a rainbow around the throne, and so on. But these, we'll call them storm signals, the thunder and lightnings, okay, which always tell us a storm is coming. Uh, God is using them uh, in the book of Revelation to prepare people for judgments as they come. And um, they're going to be repeated during the tribulation period. We'll see it as we study uh, further in the book that um, as God is going to bring a new judgment upon the earth, there are times when he will precede it with thunderings and lightnings as a way of telling the people of this earth a storm's coming. Uh, not a rainstorm or a natural storm. It's a judgment storm, okay? A judgment storm. And um, these storm signals will be repeated during that time, future, of the tribulation period, always 
proceeding, these thunderings and lightnings and so on, always proceeding from the throne and temple of God in heaven. That's where they originate from. They affect the earth. They begin in heaven. Okay? We see that in Revelation chapter 8, verse 5, chapter 11, verse 19, but especially turn to Revelation 16. Revelation 16, verse 18. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great, great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Isaiah describes it prophetically. It says it's going to be so powerful it's going to split the earth open. Okay. Romans 1. They would not worship the Creator, the people of this world, but instead worship the creation. This um, radical environmentalism. It's a religion. People worship the earth. They even have a name for the earth goddess. Gaia. They worship planet Earth, the ultimate folly. You look at the creation, and God says in his word, the creation points you to me, the creator, but you refuse to acknowledge there's a creator, and instead you fixate on the creation and begin to worship it as God, uh, man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things, right? But the planet itself. Uh, people who are radical environmentalists worship the earth and so god is going to destroy the earth because he destroys all idols all objects of worship that you know stand in the way or take honor and glory away from him as the god of all creation right now we know that's not going to be a problem because he's going to recreate the heavens and the earth and make a new city called new jerusalem for us to live in so but um during the tribulation period, God is going to shake this earth so violently. You can read Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer says, so that everything that can be shaken, materially, you know, material things, that can be shaken will be shaken and destroyed. Imagine that, where God is going to so violently shake the earth, it's going to split open, but in the process, everything that is man-made, everything that is material, is going to come crashing down. If you've invested your entire life in laying up for yourself treasures on the earth, you'll be a complete loser. Of course, if you send everything up into heaven and lay up for yourself treasures in heaven by serving the Lord Jesus right now on earth, you won't lose anything. Everything will be waiting for you when you get to heaven, right? My point is, guys, for the most part, the people of this world, and we'll end with this, the people of this world have no idea what is coming for the most part the people of this world have no idea of what is coming they are completely oblivious to what is coming just like it was in the days of noah turn to matthew 24 
Matthew 24, verse 38, Jesus said, for as, in, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day, interesting, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know they were completely caught off guard. They did not know judgment was coming until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he's talking about a future judgment that we're studying in Revelation, just like it was in the days of Noah. People were oblivious to the judgment that was coming. Now, they had no, and they're going to be oblivious to what's coming again. One worldwide judgment, Noah and the flood. The second worldwide judgment, tribulation period. And we talk about Noah and the judgment that came in his day. People had no excuse for their ignorance in Noah's day. The Bible tells he preached coming judgment to his generation for 120 years while the ark was being built. What did the people do? They laughed at him. They mocked him. They didn't take him seriously until, until God's judgment came, until the day Noah and his family entered the ark, God sealed them in, closed the door, and judgment came. And they were all destroyed. As Jesus said, the same would be true with the coming of the final world judgment in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Most people will be caught off guard and will be destroyed. Our world doesn't like to think of God as a God of judgment, do they? They prefer to look at the rainbow around the throne and ignore the lightning and thunder coming from the throne, which signifies that God is a kind and gracious God who desires to make a covenant with people, a covenant through his son Jesus Christ that would save them from the wrath to come. And because God is love, he is offering the world this opportunity to receive Christ, enter into this new covenant, and be saved. And uh, when the judgment comes, because they have applied the blood of Jesus to their lives by faith, it causes the judgment of God to pass over them, right? Jesus Christ is our Passover, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, or was it chapter 5? I, you know where it is, okay? You know the thing. I have my senior moments too, so I can be too hard on Joe. Uh, but most people want to fixate on the love of God, the rainbow, you know? And uh, what they don't realize is that, yes, God is love, but he's also holy, righteous, and just. And if you're not going to receive Jesus and be forgiven, you will stand before, you will be the recipient of God's wrath. The wrath of God abides on all unbelievers, right? Uh, in Adam all die. Everybody born into this world is born a member of Adam's race. The only way to escape the judgment coming upon the family of Adam, the curse that God leveled in the Garden of Eden, is to switch families. 
And that's possible by receiving Christ. You become now a child of God, a member of his family. No longer the wrath of God abiding on you, judgment, but now blessings and eternal life abiding on you, right? Most people don't like to think of God if they believe in God. They don't like to think of God as a God that punishes sin. Well, he has to. He's going to be a holy and righteous God. The beautiful thing about it is that he came down, became one of us, came down to this earth, and took all of our punishment upon himself. He took all of our whips, all of our, you know, the, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. He took it all. So that is, I think Spurgeon said, for you to go to hell, you have to step over the, the um, scarred, broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can get there. I mean, if you're that determined to go to hell... You can make it. But know this, you, you, to get there, you have to step over the broken, bloodied body of Jesus Christ who died to save you from hell because he loves you so much. But if you want to trample the blood of Christ underfoot to get to hell, it's up to you. Just don't ever say, how could a God of love send people to hell? He doesn't. People choose to go there. It's God's will that you be saved. It's God's will that you come to him and receive forgiveness from his son's death and so on. So we will leave it there. Um, there's some very interesting things coming. And I really wanted to maybe try to get him in tonight, but I'm going a little too long lately. So people that love me have been speaking into my life about this. So I'm going to thank you. Uh, you know, and so I'm, you know, we're, we're going to try... You know, because you sit there too long and you're not listening anymore, you know, and all right, I get it. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, thank you. It maps out for us things to come, that these things don't take us by surprise, but allow us time to prepare and to get right with you and to get close to you. Lord, we ask that you would continue blessing these studies in your word. And Lord, that you would, your spirit would be our teacher, opening our understanding to all that you have put here, that we might, Lord, embrace it, and by your grace live it, that we are prepared uh, when the trumpet sounds. We don't know exactly when that will be, but we can prepare now so it doesn't catch us off guard. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.